The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Let me add my welcome to the welcome that Jasmine and TJ already gave you. Uh, before we continue, uh, I want to I remind you and just add a, a bit of an emphasis that you men is so much more than just what we do here on a Tuesday night. As you heard about, there's a, the Women's Wholeness Day, there's Alaska, uh, we're, we're doing stuff obviously with Young Life up at Malibu, spring break, and even tomorrow night. Bring some stuff to, uh, for us to go bless some kids in the Dominican. And also a couple, a couple other things that will help you in your week. Uh, at least that's the intent. If you want to take the inn home with you, kind of reflect on some of the themes that we're going to be hitting on. We have the inn takeout that will, that's just a little devotional guide, if I could call it that, that uh, kind of sends you along the path that, that we uh, get started here uh, each Tuesday. Those are on the table right there. In the back, also on that same table is uh, is a prayer card. Uh, we would love to pray for you, uh, and I we've we've hit this nail over and over again because we want you to know that we believe that there is there is something special, if not spectacular, uh, in the mysterious power of prayer uh, that we often leave on the table. And so, if there's any way that you want to be prayed for, if there's something you're praying for, and you just want others to be praying in agreement with you. Uh, write that down on a prayer card, and I promise there will be people here at UMIN. There'll be people in the congregation here at UPC that would love to pray for you. We've got a brand new lighted sign there in the back that says, pray, okay, to draw your attention to it. Um, is, uh, uh, the band's going to be coming up uh, after I share a few words to lead us uh, once again. And if during that time you want to go write out some prayers and then drop them in the box over there. Uh, again, we would love to, to pray with you. So it doesn't just happen on Tuesday nights. Uh, hopefully, the things that we're doing here are things that are, are uh, encouraging and challenging throughout the week. Okay, I don't, I don't know how much I've shared this with y'all. Uh, I don't think I've shared a whole bunch, but uh, at one point in a previous life, I was, I was kind of fired up about musical theater. Uh, I was in, yeah, I was, I was in a stage production of Guys and Dolls. I was in a stage production of The Sound of Music, okay? Now, I wasn't on stage with Carrie Underwood or anything like that. But uh, this was a small town production out in uh, Port Angeles, Washington. And each summer, the, the Port Angeles Light Opera Association would put on a, a big production and, uh, and it, was, it was a lot of fun to be a part of that. Well, the year that we were doing The Sound of Music, you know, you do your tryouts in the winter for a midsummer show. And of course, many of you are probably familiar with The Sound of Music. And one of the, the charming, charming things about that whole story and about that show, of course, is the Von Trott children, okay? Having children involved in a stage production is always a, is always a good time. And we had some awesome children in, in this in this production, and it, it worked out perfect. Like as they lined up on stage, they were perfect, like stair steps, you know, going from from uh, uh, Friedwick down to little uh, what Greta, I think her name is. Okay, and so then you've got, uh, so we're doing that, and and our, and we get to the midsummer, and we start noticing, wow, um, all of a sudden Friedrich's gotten a little bit taller. 
And those high notes that he was hitting so effortlessly, as children often do, started to be strained a little bit, so much so that when showtime came, the inconvenience of puberty okay, had, had spoiled kind of what we had in this perfect little production of The Sound of Music, so much so this is a small town musical light opera association that he actually had to lip sync. We had somebody backstage that was singing the high notes that he would just lip sync. What small town production does that? We had a director that was much like the like Christopher Guest's character in Waiting for Guffman, if any of you have seen that. Guy was turbo, and we were going to hit that note. All that to say, in The Sound of Music, Port Angeles Light Opera Association, 1993, puberty came at a very inconvenient time. And that's just kind of what puberty is. Now, it's that... that, that that season of life where everything seems to be changing. You were just kind of fitting in and everything was just kind of rolling along for you. And then everything starts to change and it's awkward and inconvenient. And yes, puberty is one of those words that for me, I just hate saying it. You know, it, it, why, can't, why does it have to be puberty, okay? <laughs> why can't it be perfume? You know, oh, I'm just, I'm going through perfume right now. You know, I feel like that would make the whole process maybe a little bit more present. Or, you know, cookies. I'm, yeah, you know, cookies is, uh, has hit me and, you know, I'm, I've got more facial hair growing or whatever. Okay. What we're going to be talking about, if you've been with us this quarter, you know that we've been examining this whole thing that we've been calling childlike faith. We've been examining Jesus' response to questions about who is the greatest. We looked at Matthew 18 to, to remind you where Jesus says, uh, says this. He invites the, and I think we have this uh, projected for you uh, from Matthew 18, when he's pressed about who will be the greatest in this, this kingdom that, that Jesus is bringing in. He says, he called to a little child whom he placed among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Childlike, without being childish. And of course, what we've examined over the past month or so has been some of the ingredients of what this, the ingredients of this humble faith, the need to learn, the need for discipline, the need to be found. We have these, these needs in Ultimately, humility is just simply acknowledging that we have needs. A childlike faith leans into the reality that we are people with needs. Well, a little bit later on, if we keep reading in Scripture, we come to this gem of a phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, where the writer says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, and it was a man that was writing this, the Apostle Paul, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, at first glance, it looks like we could be talking about something that could be totally contradictory. But what I think the Apostle Paul is leaning into here as we continue on this examination of childlike faith is he's saying, yes, there is childlike, but 
who you are as that child, you begin to grow up. There is a type of spiritual puberty, if we can call it that, that happens. And it should happen. And it will happen. And what happens is that it continues to make us as those seeking after and following after Jesus with our lives, it starts to make us a little bit different. And anytime that happens, it can be difficult, it can be awkward, it can be downright clumsy. And so what we want to do with the balance of our winter quarter together is look at some of the ingredients of what it means to grow up to lean into this spiritual puberty, to look for it, to maybe call out some of the awkwardness and get a vision of what it looks like for us to grow up even as we seek to establish that childlike faith. Let's pray as we start, get started on this. Lord, help us with this and be our teacher. Um, we are here because we wanna, we wanna know you more. We want our faith to be real. We want it to matter, uh, and we need your spirit to help us out with that. Uh, So, Lord, meet us as we gather in this place tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as we get started with this, I feel like I need to to make clear uh, a word and a definition that we often hear in Christian circles, that when we're talking about this type of spiritual puberty, what we're talking about is this thing that, that we often hear referred to as discipleship. Discipleship is, in, in our context, is being in a constant and growing relationship with Jesus. Okay, that's what discipleship is. It's about learning. A basic definition of being a disciple of anyone would be really being in proximity to somebody in order to, to learn from them. Okay, you could be a disciple of a professor. Uh, you could be the disciple of really any sort of teacher that you would be uh, close to. But a basic definition for us would be knowing and learning from the teachings of Jesus, who we call Lord and Savior. And the reason that we, that we learn from these teachings is not so that we just know them, but then that we put them into play, that we actually imitate them uh, to some degree. Now, what comes out of the teachings of Jesus, many of you probably already know this, and, 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 but for others, this might be a bit of a challenge, that the central ethic of everything that comes out of the teachings of Jesus is love. And it is a love unlike any love that has ever been seen or experienced before. It is a radical, earth-changing love. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? And thus, what does it mean to grow up as a disciple? It means that we are committing to living a life of love. Okay, now that seems simple enough, right? Love. Yet, I don't think we do this particularly well. Why? I think it, it is so difficult in large part because of the culture that we find ourselves living in. Go with me here. Now, you may not realize it, but I think that a lot of what, what we participate in in a day-to-day is actually totally the antithesis of love. 
And I'm not talking about hate. There's, I bet you there's not one person in here that would say or, or admit to you they're somehow living a life of hate. Okay, people aren't trying to do that. I don't think anybody's trying to do that. But in the context that we live in, I want to argue that the antithesis of love is competition. In a conversation I had with some of your peers over the past week, we talked about this, this competition that, that college students and young adults participate in, often without even realizing that you're participating in it. And I feel like I came to a greater awareness of the tremendous pressure and pull that you all have to compete. Now, here's some of the things that came out that, um, that basically expose how, uh, how you all compete. Okay, that there's a competition around who is most important, who has the most opportunities to be successful, who is the most successful. One student actually uh, noted that that sometimes other people's successes reveal your own failures. There can be a competition around busyness. For those of you that were at the winter retreat, you heard Dave Lutz talk about uh, you know, asking somebody how they're, they're doing, and they say, oh, I'm busy and tired, or I'm tired and busy. It's one of the things that, that weighs us down. And whoever is busiest is working the hardest to, to win and thus putting a ton of energy into, at the very least, not losing, seeking to, to look strong or look competent and not lose. Now, now I can empathize with that. I, I know that I am, I am wired to compete. I like competition. And as I've gotten a little bit older, it's less that I'm obsessed with winning and more that I absolutely hate losing. I don't even have to win anymore. I just don't want to lose. And I'm, I'm, I'm such a sore loser, you guys. You can pray for me on that. There's a competition around proving yourself. Accomplishments become important because it becomes a sign of one's competency. And then perhaps because you are studying and living and, and seeking jobs in this era of of the Great Recession and post-Great Recession, it seems that there is a mentality of scarcity that fuels this, this competition. Thus, it can be difficult when a friend or an acquaintance gets that dream internship or maybe that internship that you wanted because it means that there's one less out there for you. We live in a culture where many of you feel that you are constantly having to sell yourselves, to sell yourselves in a way that says, look, I'm significant and I matter. I matter to you and I matter to this world. Look at me, doggone it. And I want to say that after this conversation, I, I just want, to, I want you to hear me stand before you and go, if, that, if you find yourself in that place tonight of intense competition, where you feel like you are just struggling to, to get it figured out and you, you're, you're putting a bunch of energy in it and you feel like it goes nowhere, I just want you to know, I, I, man, I'm groaning with you. As this conversation ended, I really felt, uh, felt bad uh, for the situation, the subtle competition, the subtleness to try and 
to, to try and constantly win, even though you're not even entirely sure what it is you're trying to win or what the rules of the game actually are. It's a tough place to be. Well, hopefully you will be encouraged by the reality that there is nothing new under the sun. Okay, if you will go with me now uh, to first century Corinth, the apostle Paul writes this letter. Uh, he, he actually wrote, uh, uh, there were several correspondences to this church uh, in this town called Corinth along the Mediterranean. Uh, and we have two of those correspondences. And let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Uh, if we can show you a little bit about where this is at. Okay, Corinth is, you can see it there in the Mediterranean in Greece. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons that we like to show you these maps is to, to just remind you that, that the Bible came into a particular time and place. This isn't the stuff that was just written up here. It was actually written into a situation. The situation in Corinth is that Corinth is the seaside city, and it was an urban and cultural hub. There was a lot happening there. It, it, was, it was the wealthiest city in all of ancient uh, Greece. And I actually think that this is a, this is a pretty cool note, that, that archaeologists have discovered numerous venues that would have been used for markets, drama, art, and sports. Okay, now what's significant about that is that there were these, these games that would be played, the, Ism, um, the Isminian games, the Isthmian games, there we go. And it was a competition that was second only to the Olympics that happened on the year before the Olympics and the year after the Olympics. They would compete in, in things like chariot racing, wrestling, boxing. They had art and music competitions. And what was really cool is, as I studied this, is that both men and women were able to compete in it. So you'd do the Isthmian Games, the Olympics, and the Isthmian Games. Now, that was a pretty nice rhythm because even right now, I don't know if you guys, is there anybody here that's into the Olympics right now? Okay, you shout out. All right, there's some people. That it would have been nice to have a little bit more frequent games because every year, you know, every four years when the Winter Olympics on, you have to relearn the rules to things like biathlon and curling. Okay, curling. I mean, is there is there any any sport? Is it is it bocce ball? Is it shuffleboard? And then to boot, you get the outfits. How about the Norwegian curling team and their pants? Okay, I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys actually make bowlers look a little bit stylish. Okay, uh, and the thing is, I bet you we'll be seeing those pants all over now. Um, so, so there, what, I'm, what I want you to, to connect with is that the situation in Corinth that the Apostle Paul writes into, you need to see how similar it is to the place that we're living in. It was a wealthy place where competition was encouraged and celebrated. In the same way that, in the same dynamics that we experience now, it was a very small group of people that had most of the wealth, and everybody was looking to those people as the ones who are living the dream and the ones that they wanted to be like. So it's not totally surprising that when we come to 1 Corinthians, I think it has something to say to who we are and to our situation. It's an encouragement that as we see the broader culture, 
what everybody else is doing and the way that they compete and what they say is important, Paul is simply writing to this group of young Christians, this small little church in this really rich town, to say, you, you are to be different. He gives them reminders on how they might be different. Gordon Fee notes that in almost every case in 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting their behavior, not informing it. Thus, none of the things that are written here should be new. It's simultaneously a challenge and encouragement to these young Christians in the first century to grow up. It's an acknowledgement from Paul that it's hard, that there is a puberty factor involved as that happens. He's encouraging this group of Christians to do it a little bit different. And that the ways that they compete and strive must yield to compassion and unity. And what's the kicker? How does that happen? Love. That leads us into one of the most famous passages in all of scripture, okay? And no, it's not a coincidence that we're reading this after Valentine's Day, okay? Because the problem is, as we're going to read this, is that it's too easy to reduce this to mere sentimentality. That the love that's being described in what we're about to read is trying to get us to think bigger, to think differently about the love of God that matters for us and matters for the world. So as I read this, do not reduce it to sentimentality, okay? I, I urge you to think about this first as the love God has for you and all the people sitting around you. Okay, let me read this for you. You can follow along on the screen or you can just close your eyes and, and visualize a love like this. Instead of competing, Paul says, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I have all I possess, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Okay, so it's not about how spectacular you are. It's not about what gifts you have. It's not even about kind of all the, the accomplishments, achievements, the what you do that matters. Love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But when there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, 
what is in part disappears. It'll be fulfilled. It'll be made whole. Then the passage that we already read. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see, visualize this, face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, the word that's used there in Greek, agape, first describes the love of God. This passage is simply an encouragement away from competition to remember God's love and then to live that love out. Um, as the Olympics have kind of constantly been on in our house, it's been interesting to note that more than I can tell you who's winning what medals, it's the stories that come out that make the biggest impact. The story of a Russian cross-country skier that as, as he's coming into the, the final part of the race, uh, actually breaks his ski. And as his, as his coaches are embarrassed and, and ashamed, a Canadian coach, almost out of reflex, grabs a ski, runs out there, and puts it on him so that he could finish the race. It's a story of, of a skier whose brother has uh, cerebral palsy, and this guy skis for his brother. It's the story uh, that I re- recall from when I was a kid of two guys from Yakima, Phil and Steve Mayer, two brothers that the first brother goes down and then radios back up to his brother and says, here's what you need to do. The brother who radioed back up got, sil- got the silver medal and his brother got the gold. The countless stories that you hear of parents who sacrificed to help their children's dreams live. A, a, a dad in Indiana that built rails and half pipes in their backyard to help their son live out a dream. Now, I know that these could be trite examples, but they give us a tangible vision of the type of love that we are talking about that subordinates the, comp- the competitive out- element in favor of sacrificial love. This is not life and death, but it gives us a snapshot into the type of love that I believe Paul is calling us to as he encourages us to grow up. If you are going to follow Jesus, if you are going to follow Jesus, the challenge and the encouragement is to love and love radically. Three things, then we'll get out of here. Three things to consider. First, and this is the most important, is that this passage that we just read tells us about the love that God has for us. When you read those verses four to seven, one of the drills that might help you 
is to read that in instead of saying love is patient, love is kind, etc., say read it in substitute God for the word love. Many of you have mental models of God that are inaccurate. And you need to get to know a God that is more loving and more gracious than you give God credit for. Think about those words. Meditate on them so that you might get a better understanding of the character of God and who God is. Is. If we are going to grow up into Jesus as disciples, it means we have to know who Jesus is and, and need to know the heart of God. The second is this. Trade self-help to help others. That is, it's not about me and my significance and my success, but what does it look like for us to radically live our lives for others? more often than not, this is going to be something that is smaller rather than bigger. What am I talking about? Uh, I know that many of the student leaders know that, that uh, a few weeks ago, um, my beloved stepdad uh, passed away after he had, uh, on, on January uh, 14th, uh, he, he had a stroke, perfect health, um, no, no signs whatsoever, had a stroke. Six days later, he died. Six days later, I did the memorial. And my mom is now a widow. My mom has literally never lived alone. And the outpouring of support for her in this time of great loss, the way that people have, have, have dropped in and brought her food unannounced, have come up and just helped her with household chores. Those are the types of things where they give up their time and the resources they do have to communicate a little bit of love. There might be spectacular things, but a life of love honestly means committing to doing some of those small things first. That's when our faith becomes real to us. If you are feeling crummy about yourself, go do something for someone else. Take the focus off yourself for a little while and see what that does for you. And then finally, and we'll close with this, look, if you're going to follow Jesus, which is a choice, you don't have a choice in the matter of love. If you're going to follow Jesus, you are committing to a life of radical, radical love. You know, as I meet with college students week in and week out, year in and year out, it just seems like, like I meet with so many people that are dying for their faith to be more real to them. You, you want this whole, this whole Jesus thing to matter for you. And what I want to tell you is that if it's going to matter for you, it means that you need to know this love and lean into the opportunities to demonstrate that love to others. And it's probably going to be in really small but terribly inconvenient ways. Change your mental model on who God is. 
You see, the love that's described there is first and foremost the love that God has for you, and it is not scarce. It is abundant. And the invitation that's there is inviting you into a life that is different, where you are not going to be measured by the last grade that you got on a midterm, by the last uh, ticket that you got, by the last breakup you had. But you will be, you are defined by this love, this abundant love that is for you and for others. And we then get invited into the opportunity to demonstrate that. Replace the rule of competition in your life with the rule of love. That is spiritual puberty. It's awkward. It's difficult and it's different. But far as I can tell, you are a group of people that showed up tonight because you're dying for your lives to be different. A life of love is how it will be different. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live lives of love. Help us to grow up. Lord, we know that if we do this, it's going to be awkward we know that we will be different and it will be noticed. We know that we will be tempted to go back and just do things the way that we've always done them. Uh, But Lord, uh, give us a vision uh, for how it can be different. Give us a vision of you, your love, and how we participate in that. Thank you for meeting us here in Jesus' name. Amen.